This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, December 5th. I said the fish don't fry in the kitchen, beans don't burn on the grill. It took a whole lot of trying just to get up that hill. I said, but now we're up in the big leagues. My dirty, it's our turn at bat. And just as long as we live in, it's lunatics play, and it ain't nothing wrong with that. Uh, batter up. Uh, welcome. We should start right off the bat. If anyone is listening because uh, you were promised an interview with Nathaniel Grow, uh, legal correspondent for Fangraphs, uh, I apologize for that intro. You, uh, yeah, don't don't come away with any perceived notions about our podcast because of that intro. Paul, would you like to explain to the listeners why you had to wrap that intro? Uh, yeah, Peter and I, beginning of the year, agreed to uh, to play sort of a fantasy game throughout the year. We each picked a team. Not a fantasy game. Sort of. We each picked a team for each week of the season. We had to pick all 30 teams, and uh, we took the record of those weeks that we picked those teams, and whoever had the better win-loss record at the end of the year uh, won the bet, and the loser of the bet had to wrap uh, our intro that we've used every every podcast this year, which was Nelly's Better Up. Better or worse than you thought? It's uh, a good recap. Um, <clears throat> well, I I need to hear it back. Uh, the live performance, though. Just what's your uh, initial well, so, take? So you did two versions. Listeners out there, you just heard one version. Uh, he did one with headphones in, with the song in his ears. He also did one acapella with the lyrics in front of him. Uh, I'm going to go on record and say that I think the <clears throat> the one without the headphones was better. Hmm. Uh, I was quite impressed, actually. I thought headphones in would be uh, much easier, but uh, you seem to struggle a bit with with the headphones in. Perhaps not being able to hear yourself. <laughs> How about this? And that will be the intro song for the rest of the off-season, unless you would like to re-record I'm it not at a re-record- later date. I'm not re-recording it. So that's, that's, that's it, it for the next? Yes. Wow. Even if we get, like, Commissioner Manfred on. Yeah, I'm not re-recording that. Wow. Wow. Yes. Enough said. Moving on. Yeah, so uh, you can find that track that Paul just dropped on our SoundCloud page. I'll uh, clip clip that 30 seconds for you to enjoy. Probably pin it to our Twitter as well. Uh, So welcome to the Foot in the Box podcast. Uh, It's episode 78. Uh, It's our first off-season podcast. And it's snowing. It is snowing in Champaign, Illinois. That's where Paul and I are located. Uh, we are twin brothers. Welcome to our podcast. Uh, a little <clears throat> preview first. Um, we don't have a ton of content ourselves. We're going <clears> to <throat> talk about the uh, offseason so far, look ahead to the winter meetings. We have uh, the return of baseball on TV. Paul picked a uh, terrible TV show for us to watch. Uh, and then we've got Out of the Box also return of out of the box paul and i each have an article that we will discuss and then lastly um the thing that you should be most excited for is nathaniel grow of fangraphs uh, like paul mentioned earlier uh will be on our podcast and he is on to discuss the new collective bargaining agreement that uh major league baseball and the players uh union agreed to this past week uh, so we won't talk a ton about the cba until then Anything else to uh, alert listeners of, Paul? Yeah, maybe just highlight um, in our next off-season podcast, we'll go in-depth about the Hall of Fame. So also not um, not a ton about the Hall of Fame this week, but you can look for that in a couple weeks. I believe that, um, I forget the name of it, but some sort of, 
not the players, but like general managers and owners. Uh, George Steinbrenner is up for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gets announced uh, this week, mm-hmm. I believe Monday or Tuesday. So I guess we'll review that on our next podcast. Sure. I don't think Steinbrenner should be a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I, was, I saw some back and forth on Twitter yesterday about that. They don't have really a ton to back that up, but I just feel like he's kind of a jerk. So, uh, Well, that that is a great uh, judge of whether someone should get in the Hall of Fame. Yes. Uh, all right, so before we talk baseball, our Nelly update. Uh, I feel like it's probably the most important week for the Nelly update because you defamed his name so much by singing that song. Uh, so the update this week, which we do every week on the Foot in the Box podcast, if you Google News Nelly, big news this week was that uh, he revealed a uh, long-kept secret or debate amongst Nelly fans. Uh, Paul, do you recall the song Dilemma? No. It was a hit track back in 2002 when we were... Perhaps you could sing it for us. We were 12 years old. It features uh, Destiny's Child member Kelly Rowland, and uh, we're going to play a clip for you right now. All right, so that is the uh, the clip from the song. Paul, did that sound familiar? Yeah, it does. All right, so the big issue comes from the music video, which we will link to in the uh, podcast episode page at afootinthebox.com. So go check that out. <clears throat> it's about the 3.15 minute mark. Uh, the video uh, sees the two singers flirt across the street, so Nelly and this Destiny Child member. Uh, so they're dancing in front of a fancy car, uh, the song is all about a complicated relationship, but it has been pointed out that one reason for the complications may be that Roland was attempting to send a text message in a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. And again, <laughs> you'll have to check out the music video. It looks very much like a spreadsheet on a old Nokia phone. Uh, so Nelly was finally asked about this. He addressed the issue in a recent interview with uh, an Australian-based uh, news site. And his quote was, that was the thing at the time. That was the new technology at the time. It looks a little dated now. So he didn't clarify anything? Uh, yes. I don't think Nelly understands that it's impossible to send a text through Excel. Um, but yeah, that's that if was he, the big If news. he's talking with Australian-based news outlets, could we get him on the podcast? Uh, now would be the best time. If we have some cash, he would probably do it because, like we've discussed, he's in some hot water with the IRS, and that's why he's doing all these projects. How would you even go about? Talk to his people. Probably send him your rap oh. and offer him the opportunity to uh, defend his, his name. Okay. What uh, what do you want to talk about with baseball, Paul? We're, we're like nine minutes in, so we should, we should get uh, some content. Yeah, well, I feel like we're recording this just kind of on the, the precipice of... Uh, yeah, nice word. A lot of um, things happening, and so there's not a ton to talk about that's already happened. Maybe the two most interesting teams or things that have happened. Uh, I think what the Braves and the Astros are both doing 
are noteworthy to talk about. The Braves, um, with locking down veteran starting pitching, seems to kind of signal a desire on their part to uh, to compete this next year. You think? Uh, I think that's the only... I think you could... So Bartolo Colon, Ari Dickey are the guys they brought in. Jaime Garcia they traded for this week. Okay. Yeah, that Garcia one's more... Uh, you can make the argument with Dickey and Colon. Uh, they're kind of like Edwin Jackson-type signings with the Cubs. I guess, but they're spending like, you know... Twenty-five million combined on those two. They're just one-year deals, so there's no way they'll have them pass this year. There's cheaper options, I think. Yeah, both are making more than Chris Sale. Yeah, which is interesting. Wow, that's, yeah, that's but Dickey and Colon are making more per year than Correct. Sale. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, so yeah, I think what the Rays are doing it's at least worth noting or talking about. And then the Astros uh, seem to be going all in this year. Um, signed Carlos Beltran to a, a one-year, $18 million deal yesterday. It's probably been the biggest move of the offseason so far. Sure. Um, also oh, Cespedes. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Cespedes um, to the Mets. Um, but also signed Josh Reddick. And, um, uh, traded for Brian McCann. Yeah, traded for Brian McCann. So uh, they've been busy, and it seems like they did a lot of their work before the winter meetings started. Here's a question for you, Paul. Objective take. Would you rather have uh, Fowler... Zobrist and uh, Hayward or McCann, Beltron, and uh, Reddick. Reddick, yeah. Uh, the Cubs, but that's what I that's, like. That's the correct answer. John Lackey, you could also throw in there. I mean, Hayward was considered the best free agent uh, offensive player in the market last year, mm-hmm. or one of the best. So, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say Carlos Beltron's like a premier offensive player. Yeah. The Astros' problem is they're pitching, so I think they they are maybe a, a candidate to go after Chris Sale. If you had to guess, would you say uh, Sale would get traded this week? This week, um, no, I think he'll get traded this off season. Who but, too? Hmm. There's been a lot of teams. I'll say the Nationals. Would you take the Nationals or the field? The field. Would you take the Nationals, Red Sox, Astros, or the field? Uh, probably Nationals, Red Sox, Astros. Okay. All right. Some other kind of rumors hanging out there. Andrew McCutcheon looks like he's probably going to get dealt to the Nationals. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sad. I think. Uh, I like the Pirates. I like what they've uh, done the past few years, kind of their renaissance. And it's sad to me that Pirate fans have to uh, watch, you know, their beloved star, kind of like their Griffey, uh, with the Mariners, um, get traded essentially because it's just the economics of baseball the real sad part it's a low blow to those players i mean sales in the same boat where they sign team-friendly contracts um, because they want stability and um, in some cases they want to be a part of a contender and they know if they sign a real lucrative contract and eat up 50 percent of the the team salary they're not going to be able to play on a good team so mccutcheon kind of sacrificed some of that and now he's being penalized for it Mm -hmm. which sucks yeah, him, him, Harper, and Trey Turner could be a fun, uh, mm-hmm. fun little threesome in uh, DC. And I think you've noted his numbers from last year were, were bad, but uh, is it September or August. August and September were actually decent? Yeah, it was. Uh, he returned to form in August and September after my blog post. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, so Chris Sale obviously on the block, and I feel like there's been some rumors about Justin Verlander as well. Mm-hmm. 
he yeah, could, he could get dealt. The Tigers are in a tricky situation too because the AL Central is so non-competitive. It's kind of turning into, I don't know, the National League Central or other divisions these past few years where you have like two or three teams that are quote unquote tanking hmm. um, or rebuilding, and so they could conceivably sneak in for that second wild card or maybe even win the division um, if the Royals, White Sox, and Twins are all winning 60 or 70 games. Hmm. Uh, and then lastly, uh, the three big closers with Melanson, Kenley Jansen, and uh, Robus Chapman all on the block. Uh, I you think w- there could be some a- uh, activity there. Would you be disappointed if the Cubs sign one of those guys? Or are you expecting it? Uh <laughs> I I would not uh, be disappointed either way. Chat, I feel Chapman, you'd be. I'm disappointed. not. I'm not expect. Oh yeah, yes, that's true. Uh, I'm I'm not expecting um, them to sign one of them. I would be pretty surprised if it happened. Uh, but you never know. Uh, Jansen, I think, would be the guy. If if you were going to pick one of the three that the Cubs would be interested in, I just it doesn't make a ton of sense to me that the Cubs thought getting Chapman was so important last year to their World Series chances, and then they'd be willing to go into. 2017 uh kind of by closer by committee you're hoping carl edwards uh, jr um kind of fits into that role uh, maybe they're gonna just keep trading for guys mid-season um could be a, a decent strategy but it just giving up the prospects like they did uh, for chapman torres is gonna be a great player it just doesn't make a ton of sense to me mm-hmm. but. yeah especially when you could have andrew miller exactly yeah uh, you got anything else? Nope. All right. Like Paul mentioned, the Hall of Fame voting going on. Uh, we'll talk about it a lot in two weeks on our next podcast. Um, hopefully have a, a guest on to discuss that as well. All right. So before Out of the Box, Paul, let's uh, do our baseball on TV segments. Uh, I think this is the ninth installment, eighth or ninth installment of this segment. Uh, for those that are new to the podcast, we... Um, watch baseball themed episodes of tv shows uh, so we've done um, seven different shows in the past everything from cheers to psych uh to murder she wrote my personal favorite uh x-files mm-hmm. um and, and a few others so we're looking at uh tv shows mainly that are on netflix right now and finding a baseball themed episode of that tv show uh, and on twitter uh, we're hashtagging at baseball on TV with a picture and uh, episode title. So check that out uh, if you're interested in past uh, past segments. There are a few other people tweeting that, so you'll have to look uh, kind of weed out the ones that uh, aren't a part of our podcast, mm-hmm. or maybe they're just joining the movement. Um, we had that issue coming up a hashtag for our son that was just born. Um, Samuel John Elliott uh, is the hashtag because Sam Elliott. Obviously, because of the actor, was already taken. Sam Elliott. You know Sam Elliott? No, who is that? Well, uh, I'm glad you don't, because that was one of our concerns with using that name. Uh, he's on Parks and Rec. He is um, like the weird Ron Swanson. Oh yeah. But he's also <laughs> a, a fairly famous actor that's been in a lot of like old huh, movies. That's funny. So that was taken, and then um, even Samuel Elliott was taken. So we had to settle for Samuel John Elliott. Okay. How's he doing? Doing well. How's Benson handling the adjustment? Uh, last couple of weeks, he's really um, taken a liking to him. The first couple of weeks, I don't think he like really realized what was going on or didn't realize it was going to be a permanent thing. But um, 
now he's showing him lots of love and kisses and stuff like that. So very cool. Uh, do you want to explain this episode? Sure. So, because uh, it was your selection. Yes, um, we did uh, season two, episode fourteen of a show called Leverage, which was on TNT back in the late two thousands. 2008 is when it premiered and it ended in 2013 and lest you be thrown off by Peter's um, lukewarm response to the show it did win the favorite cable TV drama award at the 39th People's Choice Awards everyone loves that award so it was a highly acclaimed show Um, but in this specific episode entitled The Three Strikes Job um, well maybe I'll back up a little bit because the show is not real familiar have you seen the show before? I had not, no. Okay. Um, the show is all about this group of kind of misfits. They're, they don't work for the police, don't work for the government, but their primary purpose is to nail rich people for breaking the law. So IMD- IMDb says, a crew of high-tech crooks attempt to steal from wealthy criminals and corrupt businessmen. Right. So they, you know, they go after people who have rich people, maybe in government or corporations that have wronged people for various reasons and they you know so their their pur- their purpose is good but the way they accomplish it is a lot of times kind of through these back channels that aren't always the best anyways this specific episode they were going after a mayor who had ordered a hit on a police officer and this mayor loved baseball he played half a season for the red sox and uh, did he mm-hmm. he said he played fenway or sorry played fenway Played for the Royals, half season for the Royals, and loved baseball. And as a mayor, one of his primary things was um, wanting to do something with a waterfront in this make-believe town. Um, it was kind of vacant and just an eyesore. And so to kind of establish his legacy, he wanted to do something with this waterfront. So uh, uh, the the leverage team, I don't know what else to call them, they come up with this plan to, to convince the mayor that they're going to build a park there. They... Um, brand themselves as real estate developers, and there's uh, a triple A team in the in the make believe. Right, yeah, there's a lot going on in the background, but at a high level, they try to convince him that they they want to build a park there to entice him to give them money, um, dirty money, and then once he did that, they would leak that to the press, and he would be exposed hmm. for um, a federal offense using campaign money for private reasons, uh, but. There isn't a real clean ending to this. The episode itself was a to-be-continued because that plan didn't work. At the very end of the episode, we find out that the mayor uh, wants to pay in cash, and that's hard to trace. He could just deny it, and so uh, it was a to-be-continued. So if I haven't watched episode 15, I don't know that I will, but if you are interested in seeing how it ends up, you can watch episode 15. Anything to add? No, I the the part that intrigued me most is this this mayor, uh, Bradford Culpepper the third is his name on the show. Uh, the actor's name is Richard Kind, and uh, yeah, what's he off of? He looked familiar. So uh, he's been an extra in a ton of shows, or not an extra, but a you know supporting character in a couple episodes, or not a main character in a movie. Um, has not been the lead role, but if you saw him, you'd recognize him. We'll tweet out a picture of him. Uh, this week, um, but Richard Kind is his name. He was the voice of Bing Bong in Inside Out. Have, hmm. you, have you seen the film, Paul? 
no. You should watch it. It's great. Uh, yeah, so that's probably his his best role. The, the role he's known for is he's the voice of Bing Bong. Uh, he's also been an extra in TV shows like Psych. That's probably where you recognize yeah. him, Paul. Uh, even Stevens, Two and a Half Men, uh, that 70s show, and, and many, many more. He looks a lot like, um, is it American Dad? That's true, The yes. Family Guy runoff? Yes. Yep. Um, I believe he was also in Mad About You and some other 90s or early 2000s uh, sitcoms. Uh, so that intrigued me. Also, the, the clip we're going to play this week comes from this guy Elliot in the show who's part of the Leverage team, and uh, he is not a big fan of baseball, but they pegged him uh, to kind of get in on the inside. He's, he plays catcher for this uh, AAA team. And, uh, you know, th- thinks baseball is boring, uh, doesn't like the sport, I presume hadn't played it for, you know, several years. Are you going to play the clip that's wrong? A, a Tim Tebow type player. Wrong. He mentions at one point that he doesn't like baseball because the defense can't score. Is why, that, why is that wrong? Because the defense, in, once you, to score in basketball, you have to you know what he's talking become about. the offense. You, ta- you know what he's talking about. Maybe, but... Like in football, and yes, this is the clip I'm going to play, but in football, you can pick off a pass, return it for a touchdown. Those are points. In basketball, you just pick it off and lay it in. Baseball, you make a great play, you can't score. Yeah, I guess. Uh, so yeah, but this this Elliot guy, uh, the clip we're going to play, is he's arguing with his friend Alec, who's also part of the leverage team, and has kind of set him up with a pedigree. So if you were to look up this Elliot guy's stats, you would see all these made you know made up things. Um, Elliot doesn't like baseball, yet he is a tremendous player. I believe he goes four for five in his first game with a home run, wins mm-hmm. the game in the bottom of the ninth. Gets a hoagie named after him? Yes. Uh, very unrealistic, obviously. Um, I'm pretty sure Tebow, Tim Tebow watched this episode <laughs> and was convinced he could play. He was a skilled actor playing baseball, though. He had a good swing. And sure. He looked, looked, looked good in a baseball jersey. Yeah. So here is the clip from uh, Leverage uh Season 2, Episode 14. Got drafted in the sixth round right out of high school. Had a cup of coffee in the Royals organization. Then you bounced around the minors, you bounced around the world. And as we can see here, you made a very popular commercial for an energy drink in Japan. It took me 13 hours. There's only one problem. I don't like baseball. Everybody likes baseball. I don't like baseball, man. All right? Yeah, I don't like any sports you can't score on defense. Football, hockey, even basketball. But baseball? I'm not even talking to you. Boring. Hey, well, can you play the commercials? Well, that was Baseball on TV. Now it's time for Out of the Box. This is a segment where Paul and I each discuss an article that we enjoyed uh, from this past week. So, Paul, uh, what was your article? I read uh, R.J. Anderson's uh, feature of Jonathan Judge for CBSSports.com. The headline is, MLB analytics guru who could be the next Nate Silver has a revolutionary new stat. And like I said, that's by R.J. Anderson. Really, really interesting article because Jonathan Judge is a really fascinating guy. So he's a lawyer by day in Chicago, um, Brewers fan. Uh, but by night, he is um, a baseball stat genius. 
Um, so much so that he's actually consulted with the Tampa Bay Rays hmm. the past couple of seasons, and he's developed this new stat called Deserved Run Average, DRA. Um, I think it'll be up on Fangraphs this offseason, um, but it's it's uh, proprietary to baseball prospectus. And the stat itself, which the article talks a little bit about, is trying to kind of do what FIP does um, and remove a lot of the things that the pitcher can't control and kind of boiling down a pitcher's performance to one stat. But it goes beyond FIP. It gets into um, everything a pitcher can't control that affects their performance. So ballpark, um, umpires, the, the catcher they're throwing to and the catcher's framing ability, the batters they face, the league they're in. So just think about all of those things that a, a pitcher has no control over on the mound. And um, this stat is trying to remove all that to give us a true indicator of um, the pitcher's honest performance. Hmm. So that by itself was interesting, but then, yeah, Judge is just fascinating. Um, lawyer by day, uh, genius by night, and uh, he has no mathematical, no formal mathematical training, so he's all self-taught. His degrees were in music and um, law, obviously. Um, so he's done all this by himself. Um, he said, asked, when, asked where he learned so much or how he learned so much, he replied, um, a lot of Google, Wikipedia, Stack Exchange, and a few textbooks. Um, he said he's, he says he works on it what's almost the, every night. What's the Stack Exchange? I think it's like a statistical hmm. self-learning website. So uh, it gives hope to people, right, that <laughs> um, you could work for a major league team and you can write without a formal math background. He seems to be very, very intelligent. So uh, I guess if you're... If you're a whiz and super smart, then maybe consider this as a viable option. But, but yeah, did you read the article? I didn't. Yeah, I have it saved um, in a tab. Um, yeah, I'm wanting to. I like R.J. Anderson a lot, and I like uh, Jonathan Judge a lot. So mm-hmm. uh, it seemed like a really good combination. What do you got? Uh, my article this week is a Q&A that uh, Ken Rosenthal did with Joe Madden. It was actually a, uh, you know, an audio question-answer segment at some function uh, recently. I forget what exactly it was, but the transcript of that question-answer was posted on Fox Sports, and I will link to that in the podcast episode page, just like we'll link to Paul's article as well. Uh, So you can go check out the full question-answer. Madden was very open uh, and honest. Um, There's actually a point where uh, fans could also ask questions uh, that were in attendance, Um, and just uh, three question-and-answers caught my eye. The first one uh, from Rosenthal, he says, let's talk about games six and seven of the World Series. Uh, let's start with Chapman. Game six, seven to two lead, seventh inning. Why did you bring him in? So, of course, um, if you remember game six, the Cubs were up uh, by five runs. Chapman had just pitched uh, two and uh, two-thirds, I believe, the uh, previous game in mm-hmm. game five at, at Wrigley to win. And so this um, coming off that, he's bringing him in. Uh, in the seventh inning with a five-run lead. A lot of fans questioned the move, especially in Game 7 when Chapman uh, seemed to run out of steam. So Madden's answer to why did you bring him in, uh, they had two guys on, and I did not like who was coming up to hit. I just wanted to make sure that we got through um, that with some kind of lead. If you don't, if I had brought someone else in and the lead diminished at all, I thought the number of pitches he would have to throw later in the game would have been even more impactful against him. There was no game eight. There was no game seven at that point. 
It's different, just a different situation compared to anything you would do in the regular season. We couldn't afford to lose any more games. And in the bullpen, some of our guys had been hurt at the end of the year. Pedro Strope with a bad knee and Rondon with a bad triceps. Of course, there was C.J. Edwards and Mike Montgomery to utilize also. But we could not lose any more games. I thought by keeping the game in tow right there, if we were to add on, I could get Chapman on the backside, try to do a reverse kind of thing. I thought the moment was right. It was a meaty part of their batting order. Lindor hit the ground ball to first base to end the inning and the next inning. I think the guy who really bothered me was Jose Ramirez. Ramirez, to me, is a really good player. It was really a bad part of the batting order right there. I didn't know and trust anybody else. I thought if we could at least hold serve there and move the kneel in our favor, and I would be more comfortable going with the other guys in the latter part of the game. As it turned out, that's how it played, but it was one of those moments. I thought to myself, tell Boss to get somebody ready in case we were to score a couple of runs. All of a sudden, Rizzo hits the, the home run, and we're scrambling to get Stropey ready. Pedro Strope. It was one hitter too late for me. But otherwise, honestly, I really believe, and I think everyone who is a Cubs fan should be very happy that I brought Robles in in that moment and not save him. Follow-up question by Rosenthal. Uh, that was a question I was going to ask, too. With a 9-2 to lead after Rizzo's home run in the ninth, what happened there? You guys just weren't prepared? Madden's answer, it happened so quickly. If it was a 5-point lead, I was still considering leaving him in the game right there. The negligent part there was not having someone warm up in case we did add on. We did, and then we got him out after four pitches. So what, what do you make of that uh, question and answer, Paul? Yeah, I think that... Uh, that's kind of what I would have assumed his thought process was. Um, I wonder uh, what um, the World Series and then like those comments do to the confidence of like Rondon and <laughs> Strope and uh, other guys in the pen. Because um, yeah, yeah, I mean specifically he says he didn't know or trust other guys. Yeah, I didn't know and trust anybody else. Yeah, and even you know we were talking earlier about what they're going to do to, to fill Chapman's vacancy this off season. I, I don't know. It seems like they need to add somebody because there's not a level of trust there. Maybe Madden would say he mentions the injuries they had and sure. Maybe he would say that he didn't trust them because they hadn't worked themselves back into a rhythm. So maybe given an off season of recovery, he, he would feel differently. A uh, couple other question answers, shorter ones uh, from the audience. Uh, this one was asked, why was Aroldis throwing fastballs to Rajay Davis? Madden's answer, here's part of that whole deal too. The game started with Wilson Contreras catching. One of my concerns with the whole setup was that once I brought in David Ross, Wilson comes out. Then with Aroldis coming in, it was going to be David. I like catching Wilson with Aroldis. Uh, David Ross is fabulous, but I think a lot of it was the fact that David had not caught Aroldis as much as Wilson had. You saw that when Aroldis went out to pitch the ninth inning after Montero had replaced Ross, he threw a lot more sliders in that inning. It wasn't because he wasn't feeling his fastball. It was just a different philosophy with the catcher. Uh, and actually, I talked about that, that I thought Ross should have started so that uh, Contreras could have come in after uh, Lester. They Again, I wonder like what that way. you think Ross would say, yeah, I would have concerns about catching Chapman. I don't know. Is it just like he's old and can't react as quickly? or? Uh, well, he just hadn't done it yet. So I think um, not being as athletic is one reason why. Wilson seemed to be struggling to get on the same page with any pitcher that was on the mound. <laughs> it's true. 
Uh, last question, the Baez bunt. So 3-2 pitch, one out. Hayward on third base with the score tied in the ninth. What was your thinking there? Of course, Baez struck out after following the, the bunt attempt off. And uh, Madden's answer I thought was very odd. He said, uh, Javi strikes out over 80% of the time on a full count. He's going to chase. Jason Hayward is one of our best base runners. If Javi puts that ball down anywhere, there were two things I thought he had a chance of doing. Making contact on a bunt and getting a ball he might actually take. He normally swings on a full count. That's just his MO. The ball has to practically almost hit him for him not to swing. When he hit that home run off Cueto in game one of the division series, it was a full count. But for the most part, when he gets to a full count, it's not normally good. And Cleveland's good at scouting. They know all that stuff. They're very bright. And Javi is probably our best bunter in that situation. So that was the answer, and I thought, oh, that's that's interesting. Uh, but Rosenthal adds, Baez actually struck out 18 times in 41 at-bats on a 3-2 count during the regular season, 43.9%, so not 80% of the time. Hmm. He had not struck out in five previous postseason at-bats on a 3-2 count, going 3-for-5 with the home run off Cueto. 3-for-5, wow. So that didn't really um, line up. I, mean, I get Madden's thinking that it either, you know, he either gets the bunt down or it changes kind of his mindset or his vantage point, and so he takes a pitch that he would have bunted or swung at, but probably should have had him sw- swing away there. Yeah, he had a homer earlier that game too, right? That's right. Yep. Uh, so like I said, you can find that full Q&A, um, the link to it on our podcast episode page. Well, I think that does it uh, for Out of the Box. Uh, next up, we have our interview with Nathaniel Groh. He's a writer at Fangraphs, and uh, we brought him on to discuss the collective bargaining agreement, which was signed uh, this past week. Uh, so super excited for you to hear uh, Nathaniel. So without further ado, here he is. We are joined on the podcast this week by Nathaniel Groh. Nathaniel is the Associate Professor of Legal Studies at the University of Georgia. He's also the author of a book entitled Baseball on Trial, The Origin of Baseball's Antitrust Exemption. And he is a writer at Fangraphs on everything relating to baseball and legal matters. Uh, Listeners, you can follow him on Twitter at Nathaniel Grow. Nathaniel, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. I have a, a couple uh, quick hitters uh, to start with, not really about the CBA. Uh, the first one, your book was published by the University of Illinois, and that's Paul and I went to the uh, Illinois and, and live in Champaign. Uh, does the fact that it was published by them mean anything, uh, or is it just, uh, how do, I guess, how does that work? Basically, I was looking for like a press at a university, like a university press centered at a college that had, that would either, um, that would typically either printed like sports books, sports history related books or like law, like legal history books. And mm-hmm. it just so happened that Illinois had both the sports history kind of um, line and then a legal history line. So I thought that it made sense for that reason. And uh, they were great to work with. So that's, that's your only tie to Illinois. That's, I've been to Chicago. <laughs> that's pretty much my only tie to, to Illinois. Yeah. Okay. And then going off that, you went to Michigan for uh, law school uh, are you a fan of their football team? And if not, where do your college football allegiances lie? Yeah, so I always grew up rooting for Michigan. I'm from Ohio, but never liked Ohio State. And so Michigan was kind of a natural choice. I had a lot of family from up there and everything. So, um, yeah, they definitely um, would. I'm still, you know, root for Michigan, whatever, especially whenever they play Ohio State. Yeah, I was bummed. Uh, I was hoping that Washington or Clemson would lose so they have a shot at the 
the playoff, but uh, that didn't happen. No, it wasn't meant to be. Nope. All right, uh, so first question for you. Um, you're obviously very knowledgeable about baseball and all its legal matters, both now and then with your book and kind of throughout its history. Uh, how did you get into that field of study, and is this baseball kind of topic, is that more of your main focus in your work, or is that uh, a hobby? Sure. So I originally started getting into it, like when I was an undergrad, I had to do a like a senior thesis, and I, I knew I wanted to go to law school, and so I'd always been interested in legal stuff, and then I'd always been a big baseball fan too, and at some point along the way when I was kind of trying to figure out potential topics to write about, I saw something about baseball having this antitrust exemption, and I thought that, that was interesting, and so I actually wrote the senior thesis on that topic, and it's just been something that's kind of stuck with me ever since, and you know, now I, you know, as part of my job, research wise i do a lot of different stuff a lot of it's been focused on sports stuff and baseball in particular Mm -hmm. you know antitrust regulation sports leagues labor law things like that and then some other stuff that's not quite as interesting and for most people in terms of like patent law and and whatnot so kind of a variety of different areas okay well the the big thing right now is the collective bargaining agreement that was signed between major league baseball and the, the players association on wednesday avoided any uh, any strike or work stoppage, and uh, it means that we'll go 27 years without a stoppage of play. Uh, for the fan who doesn't really understand anything about the CBA other than that there's not going to be a strike, uh, they're not going to miss any games, uh, what things from this CBA are worth talking about? Well, I mean, just in general, the fact that there's a CBA is worth talking about. You know, I, I think fans sometimes don't always appreciate, like, how many different rules come out of that, you know, agreement that basically under the law, once the players decided to form a players' union back in the 60s um, and started to negotiate collectively as a group with the owners, um, anything that affects the work, the working conditions or other, you know, basically terms of employment for Major League Baseball players has to be negotiated through the union. And so it's not just things like minimum salaries and a salary cap or lack thereof. It's also stuff like, you know, the number of teams that qualify for the playoffs or like we've seen um, some in the news, you know, um, that the all-star game will no longer determine who has home field advantage in the world series and just lots of other stuff in terms of, you know, players get chefs and, you know, how much time off they have and when do road games have to be scheduled if they have to fly out of town that night. And lots and lots of nitty-gritty little rules that, you know, make up a lot of the, you know, the background for the sport that we all enjoy that ends up coming out of that CBA. So I think by the time it's all said and done, this agreement's going to be probably in the 200 to 300 page page range. It's going to be a huge, you know, contract and huge agreement that talks that touches upon a ton of different things in the sport. That having been said, I think that, you know, the aftermath of it, people, the the biggest things are probably the financial-related, you know, topics, the things like the luxury tax or competitive balance tax, the, you know, how that's been amended for this term, Um, things like the international, you know, um, amateur talent, you know, acquisition side instead of an international draft, having, you know, basically a hard cap on how much teams can can spend in signing bonuses, for international players. I'm thinking that, you know, for most fans, that plus probably the the World Series thing will end up being the biggest, you know, public signs of, you know, what came out of this negotiation. Was there ever a point uh, in the last couple of weeks where you were concerned about a deal getting done? 
Um, I always thought that – that's a good question. I always thought that it was going to get done. It just didn't seem like – I mean, usually if you look at these things across, like, not just baseball, but all the different sport, you know, pro sports, there's usually a whole lot of, you know, warning before you get into a work stoppage. Like, one side or the other is coming out publicly a lot in the months leading up to it saying – you know, there's just not the deal is not going to get done, or we need to have major, major changes, or major concessions, or something like that. And you just didn't see those types of statements coming out of the union or from the owner's side. So it didn't seem likely that this was ever going to result in a lockout. But then at the same time, it, once you get down to that last couple of days, and there's still no deal in place, and there's some suggestion coming out that the owners are getting really frustrated with the players and that the owners are prepared to lock the players out, then you know, it at least became possible, although at the end of the day it never really materialized. Hmm. The general consensus pretty much from everyone is that the owners uh, won this agreement and have won the last couple. Reading your work, it, it seems like you agree with that, and um, I guess are we headed towards a 2021 fight between the owners and players, or is there a, enough money to go around that it's not going to be an issue? So... I do agree generally with that consensus. I think, you know, I, I, with the caveat that I do think it's always hard to jump to a rush conclusion on these things. I mean, we haven't even seen the final, final agreement yet. And even then, like, there's oftentimes unintended consequences. You know, I don't think anybody four or five years ago would have had any sense of exactly how, like, the qualifying offer system would play out and how that would hamper, you know, some players on their free agency and whatnot. So I think, um, you know, it remains to be seen. But I definitely think from an initial take that the owners did quite well here in terms of, you know, getting – in some ways they're almost better off. Like originally they wanted an international draft, but in some ways they're better off with the system they got because they've got now – by all accounts they're going to have hard caps on the amount that teams can spend internationally. You know, salary caps have been something that the union's always been opposed to. I think the union would say, well, this isn't technically a quote-unquote salary cap, but it comes – really really close even if it's not technically a salary cap you know in terms of how much teams can spend internationally in some ways from the owner's perspective that's even better than a draft now they've got a hard limit that it's going to apply to all 30 teams and they've really got that kind of um cost predictability you know down in a way that they've never had before from an amateur talent acquisition side so i think that that's a big thing for the owners i think the luxury tax and the way that you know, that it was amended. Not only did I think, you know, if I'm being honest, that the union kind of screwed up by agreeing to such small raises to the to the threshold over each of the next four or five years, but they also just totally increased, ramped up the penalties for violating the, or for exceeding the thresholds, which, again, from a union perspective, I don't fully understand why they're willing to go there, especially not without raising the thresholds higher than they did. So I think those are the big things in terms of economics that I think are going to, you know, really play out and potentially disadvantage players over the next few years. That having been said, they did get some good stuff for them in terms, like we talked about a minute ago, in terms of, you know, um, teams can't start games too late on a night where our team has a cross-country flight afterwards, and they do get chefs now and all this stuff, which you know matters to the players quite a bit, even though the fans don't really see it. To the second half of it, in terms of where we're headed, it's it's really hard to say. I think it's hard to predict five years out whether there's going to be a work stoppage. I do agree that, in general, the players have gotten the worst of the deal the last few times around. But at the same time, there's no public indication, really, that the union leadership, at least, seems to appreciate that they're not getting good deals. And so, you know, you're starting to hear some squawking about some players being upset with the way this 
negotiation went, but it's not at all clear that you've got a majority of players who are upset enough that they're going to be willing to really take a stand and you know drive a hard line bargain five years from now. So I think a lot of it will depend on how badly this deal turns out for the players, where we are five years from now financially, and just whether the players have the stomach to you know undergo a long work stoppage to get to try to drive a better deal next time around. In studying uh, these type of labor negotiations, uh, like you said, you know, uh, the, the union was formed back in the 60s. So over the last 50 or 60 years, from a, a public relations standpoint, who typically has more to lose from uh, a labor stoppage? You know, just your typical fan, do they perceive the owners as being kind of rich and entitled or is it more of uh, the responsibility falls on the players? Yeah, so I think that historically... It's probably the players probably have it a little bit worse PR wise. I, I think every negotiation, every CBA is different though, potentially, and every work stoppage is different. But just on the whole, I'd say, you know, from a fan's perspective, they say, you know, these guys are getting paid hundreds of thousands back, you know, 40 years ago, or now you know, today, you know, tens of millions of dollars to play a kid's game. Like, what are they complaining about? You know, the owners are kind of more, people know about them, but they're kind of, it's you know, their profits aren't as public and they're kind of, you know, not as, you know, in the spotlight as much. But I think at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, what's the basis for the work stoppage. I think, you know, I don't think the public was really happy with either side back in 1994, but I think at least as a media perspective, there is a sense, you know, back that time that the owners were probably overreaching and that, you know, a lot, even though the players had gone out on strike, it was really a response to, overreach on the ownership side and so i think whenever you have one it just comes down to kind of at least from a media press perspective it's who do they think is being the more unreasonable party least reasonable party and that they'll get some share of the blame but at the end of the day there's always gonna be those fans who sit there and say you know these guys are making so much to play a kid's game they should you know just take whatever they're being offered and be happy with it mm-hmm. yep uh one thing i've i've liked about following baseball and part of why i'm a baseball fan is because uh the off season's fun. It's fun to track with front offices, and I think uh, in other sports with their salary caps, it's a lot harder and a lot more complicated unless you kind of read into uh, their CBAs, like the NBA, NFL, NHL, all get very complicated in the off season. Uh, and I'm a bit worried that baseball's headed there. You know, for the average fan, they just aren't going to spend the time to understand these new. Um, you know, qualifying offers and what round picks you have to give up and the international signing bonus. It's it's limited to five million a year, so guys from Japan can't come over until they're twenty five, stuff like that. So I'm worried that it's getting too complicated. Is that a, a fair fear to have, or you think it'll get, I guess, simpler to understand once we kind of know more about it? I think it depends on the on the fan, you know, and what they're interested in. I mean, I guess you know, th- you know, some people would say, well, football is by far the most popular sport. They probably got the most arcane, you know, salary cap system, and it doesn't seem to hurt the popularity. But hmm. I do agree that you know, the off season is less significant and important in football other than maybe the draft. Yeah, I think that it just comes down to some of it is a matter of how tight a cap or how tight the luxury tax the owners and the players want to put into things. If you had a, if, Even if you had a real true quote-unquote salary cap in baseball that was set high enough, I don't think you'd necessarily see that many teams you know, bumping up against there so that all their decisions are being made on a financial basis. I think a lot of, you know, in the NFL, you see it's a pretty tight range between the salary floor that each team can have and the salary cap that they that they max out at, and there's just not a lot of wiggle room there, and, you know, a lot, so many decisions become financially driven for that reason. 
Yeah, I mean, some people would say that the luxury tax has basically become a salary cap. I mean, there's hardly any teams that are willing to really go over that limit. And even teams like the Yankees, obviously, have been spending a lot less than they probably would have otherwise in recent years due to that luxury tax. And so I think at the end of the day, it just comes down to, you know, how are teams viewing that system? Uh, Do they view it as a hard rule that they're willing to overcome? You know, where is that threshold set at? If there's a $400 million salary cap in baseball, Today, no team's ever even going to come close to it. And you, as of right now, you're not going to have you know any real concerns. But the lower it gets, and the start, the more it starts to bump up against where teams would otherwise be, you know, setting their payrolls. I think that's when it becomes potentially a bigger issue from a you know hot stove winter meetings type um, perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed that uh, they said uh, that neither side brought up pace of play or like a pitch clock or anything like that. Is that something that can be worked on outside of the CBA, or is that um, just not going to be a thing for the next five years? So potentially both. I'd say that, you know, anytime that the owners and players want to change something, they're welcome to do so if they both agree to it before the next five years, you know, mm-hmm. before a new agree- uh, overall agreement, you know, negotiated five years from now. So, if, I mean, we've seen that in the last couple of years where the players and owners agreed to up the penalties for PED and performance, you know, use. And then, they agreed to a new domestic violence policy last year that they, you know, just decided to implement, you know, in the middle of the CBA. So if both sides are inclined to say we want to have a pitch clock or we want to change the roster size, that was another one that, you know, didn't materialize, adding a 26-man or trying to change some of the, you know, ridiculousness of rosters in September and the impact that has. They're welcome to do that in the middle of the term of the CBA. The question is just, you know, if they couldn't reach an agreement on it this last time around, Will they be able to, you know, between now and 2021? I do think, too, that the fact that the owners didn't even raise it, it was kind of surprising the pitch clock, from a pitch clock perspective and, you know, kind of raises questions about how much do they really care hmm. about it if they weren't even – if it didn't even, like, come up once, like, even in passing. Like, that definitely suggests it's not a high priority for either side. So I guess that, you know, it's the long story short, yes, they could – you know, reach an agreement on it next year if both sides were amenable to it. But the fact it didn't come up at all would suggest it's pretty low on, on both sides' radar probably and unlikely to be something that they decide to reach an agreement on over the next few years. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so I know you're going to be following kind of the aftermath of the CBA, but what are some other baseball legal matters you're following? I know that there's a, a minor league suit trying to get their pay raised, Um I know there's always stuff with, uh, you know, streaming rights and MLB TV and that sort of thing. Um, but are there any other things on the radar? Yeah, I think the minor league players' lawsuits probably the big one right now. Um, there's technically a few different cases going forward on different theories, but you know, just I think that that's probably the most overarching kind of and potentially the biggest impact um, topic in working its way through the courts right now. You know, if the players are successful in that suit, I don't think it'll like fundamentally revolutionize baseball, but you could definitely see some modest, you know, changes. The owners have said that, you know, they would probably reduce the number of minor league teams if they were found to have been in violation of the minimum wage and overtime rules. A lot of people are skeptical of that, whether that's actually true or not, but, you know, it would definitely increase, you know, farm system payrolls and farm system expenditures. The question is just, would it do so enough? to really have the owners, you know, tighten down enough to, you know, cut a whole level of classification or one of their, you know, affiliates or something or something mm-hmm. like that. I think that would kind of remains to be seen. 
but that could have an impact on, you know, people who follow prospects in the minor league, you know, game. Um, you also potentially would see, you know, better players coming up through the system if they have more money. You know, I mean, right now so many of these guys are living off, you know, peanut butter and jelly and stuff that, you know, they're trained to be professional athletes, but they're not able to really, you know, train from a dietary perspective in the way hmm. we expect. And, you know, maybe, you know, the fact that they are living in such poverty has deterred some people who might have otherwise entered, you know, into professional baseball. There's definitely guys, if you're not coming from money, it's going to be really hard to last too long on making, you know, eight, $9,000 a year, right? So there's definitely an impact in terms of the overall talent pool and how well these guys are able to train and, you know, just stay in the profession in general. And so I think, you know, that's probably the area that has that could have the biggest impact down the road. Sounds good. Well, Nathaniel, thanks so much for joining our podcast. And uh, uh, listeners, check out his work on Fangraphs and follow him on Twitter. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks to uh, Nathaniel for joining us on the podcast. Great stuff from him about the CBA. Uh, listeners, go check out his work at Fangraphs and also uh, follow him on Twitter at Nathaniel Grow. Well, looking ahead uh, to future weeks of our podcast, uh, we will be back recording two weeks from uh, now, so December 19th. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look out for that podcast. We will be discussing the Hall of Fame voting, among other things. Hopefully, have a um, kind of an update for how the how the vote's looking and and who's likely to get in or just miss. And uh, we'll also recap who was voted in, if anybody, from the um, the GM owners pool of uh, of people. And after that um, podcast is our brothers uh, episode. So if you're new to the podcast, Paul and I have older brothers who live in Champaign and Chicago. And uh, when we're all together for the holidays, we record a podcast episode where we discuss where we will be going on our next brother's baseball road trip, which happens every summer. Uh, So we discuss the options and then take a a vote on the podcast. Um, Last year was the first year we did that, and it worked out uh, reasonably well. So we're going to do it again this year so that should come out sometime to end december i think that's it for our future gonna uh, be writing some things for the website so check that out footinthebox.com you can send us emails at a footinthebox at gmail.com we would love to uh, answer any questions you have or discuss various things so send us uh, questions send us thoughts footinthebox at gmail.com you can subscribe to our podcast on itunes make sure to leave us a review there Helps get the word out to more people. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter at A Foot in the Box or check out our website at footinthebox.com. Uh, Paul, you mentioned last time that you would like to start a tradition of recommending another baseball podcast to end each off-season episode. Uh, so do you have a episode I do. or a podcast in mind? I do, yeah. Um, and this one's a bit different. Um, so last time I did Eric Roseberry's uh, On Baseball Writing. Mm-hmm. Um, hope some of you have listened to that. It was really good. Um, this time I'm not doing a baseball podcast per se. I'm doing a baseball episode of another podcast. So the podcast is called Undone. That's a new one from Gimlet, which is uh, kind of a podcast production company. But the, the name of the podcast is Undone, and uh, episode one is uh, di- on Disco Demolition Night, which if you're unfamiliar, uh, back in 1979, the White Sox 
um, in between double headers uh, had this promotion called Disco Demolition, where you brought in a, uh, you brought in a record, a record. I forgot the name for a second. I was going to say CD. Brought in a record to have Steve Dahl, a disc jockey at that time, destroy on the field, and it ended up turning into just a crazy scene. They had to cancel the second game of the doubleheader, and there were people on the field rioting. So uh, a fascinating moment. But this podcast episode goes back and looks at that. And um, the the whole idea behind Undone is that they look at kind of historical moments that everyone knows about, but then kind of follow up on what happened afterwards. Hmm. Um, so interesting episode and inter- interesting podcast in general. What's the name of it? Undone is the podcast. And then episode one is on Disco Demolition Night. Great. Yeah, we'll check that out. Okay. Well, thanks for listening. Um, appreciate that. And uh, I don't have anything else. Just a reminder to keep a foot in the box. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks.